Welcome to the Parenting Cipher, where each episode will give you the tools and resources to help your child thrive in school and in life. Please rate and review this podcast. I'd love to hear your feedback. And also hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. Hello, everyone. Today, the Cypher is blessed with Miss Kim from Amel Counseling, who specializes in grief, loss, and therapy for kids and teens of color. And I would love for her to introduce herself to everyone because she is such a treasure. Hey, y'all. I'm Kim Wheeler Poitman. I am a licensed clinical social worker, and I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I own a practice, as Jeannie said, Amel Counseling Consulting, based in Philadelphia. We are a group practice of three other clinicians with me and we only see children, teens, and adults. And my specialties are grief, loss, racial trauma, working with kids of color, and also transracial adoptees. Oh, I like that one. I like that trans because, you know, I had a conversation with the writers of Raising um, Black Kids in White Spaces, and mm-hmm. they are transracial adoptees. And they were talking about the conversation between when you are not of African, you're not African-American, but you are white or another race, raising an African-American child. So that right there, and to know that you specialize in that, that's a big deal because the awareness that goes with that. <laughs> uh, yes, 100%. Yeah. So- me and Kim were talking like post-COVID trauma, <laughs> and we were talking about the importance of what she does to the Black community, especially around helping children and teens navigate the world when they're dealing with racism as well as the microaggressions. And with that being said, when a child is dealing with those things, when they come see you, what do you see and how do you actually kind of help them? Well, when a kid typically comes to me, you know, parents may have like a sense that there may be some microaggressions, there may be some racial component to what's going on. But a lot of times what kids will identify is that there's a lot of anxiety and a Mm -hmm. lot of perfectionism, especially when we have kids that may be in predominantly white spaces, that they are one of few or they're the only. And so they have this pressure that they need to perform. There may be some microaggressions they've experienced from their teachers or from administrators or other adults and coaches that they internalize. And then oftentimes what we tend to see are kids that at that point have been performing very well and they just kind of start to fall apart. They describe it as they wear a mask and that the mask isn't working anymore. And so, you know, instead of them really identifying the racial stuff, They'll keep that to themselves, but they'll just say they just don't feel like they fit in or they just don't feel like they can keep it up anymore. Or we see with younger kids that they may say, I don't like my skin or I wish I looked different or things would be better if I looked different. That's typically what I'll see, especially when kids are experiencing like some racial disparity and some racial trauma or discrimination like in school settings or in extracurricular settings. So when they come to you and they are in that state where they're saying, I don't like my skin color, for the younger children, how do you work with them to get them to start to embrace their differences? Well, one of the things I think it's really helpful is I look how I look. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm black, y'all. I wear my hair natural. When they come into my office space, everything is just diverse. 
So I'm not very heavy handed about race and rah, rah, rah and all that. Like it's pretty much like it is what it is. I am who I am. Right. So we really just start to talk about like them liking themselves, which is the more important thing and finding characters outside in the world that they really identify with. And then looking at that and then saying, okay, well, what about those characteristics do you like and where can you find them in yourself? And so we do a lot of self-esteem work. I also, you know, ensure that there's schools because I work pretty closely with schools as well as parents feel comfortable with it. I'm mm-hmm. having very honest conversations about representation and diversity and what work are the schools actually doing and making kids feel comfortable and acclimated to school. A lot of times what teachers and administrators will see is kids that maybe have some school withdrawal, refusal, they may not be keeping up or that they are having like some social anxiety, maybe some separation anxiety. And this is the thing that they're looking at. Whereas I am pretty direct in saying, well, you know, how are peer relations? You know, Mm. how are they interacting with, where do they sit? Who do they eat with? Who do they play with? You know, this is a thing that's been communicated to me. This kiddo feels like they don't feel like they belong. Where are any other kids? Are there any other kids that look like them? Do you have toys? Do you have books that look like them? Reading a story about (laughs) everybody looking the same and it's okay is different when a kiddo is saying, yeah, it's okay that they're all different, but I don't want to be different. And so when adults start to get, they're going to be uncomfortable and I don't really care, (laughs) but they, they understand it, their discomfort It's the exact same thing that this kid is feeling. So I don't go with a colorblind approach. I think that that's completely unrealistic. I don't go with the whole thing of like, everybody has different colors and that's great. That's a given. The issue is that they know that it's better to be white. And we have to sit with that and we have to be uncomfortable and say, well, why is that so? And then we have that conversation with schools and we have that conversation with parents about whether they expose their kids to do you find when you we talked about social anxiety, we talked about withdrawal and, you know, in the cipher, we're dealing with children who have various diagnoses. Do you find that when you go to the school, sometimes the child may have a diagnosis that they haven't actually been addressed and the social anxiety and the withdrawal, instead of them actually looking at it as though it's something that's saying something's going on with this child, when they have an actual diagnosis, is it more so, well, we're not even going to look at that they may be feeling this way because they have this diagnosis and their behavior problem. Yeah. I mean, I think that if we're speaking frank, I mean, that's basically like we're looking at it through a very Eurocentric white lens that we can pathologize a lot of things. And yeah, a kid may have a specific diagnosis. They may be on the spectrum. They may be neurodivergent. They may have like ADHD. They may have some executive functioning. They may even have some intellectual disabilities, but that doesn't mean that they don't have emotions. And that doesn't mean they don't have feelings. And it doesn't mean that they can't see and experience differences. And it doesn't mean that they can't pick up on internal biases and implicit biases. They can do all those things because they are human beings. Race is a social construct that was created for a particular reason. And mm-hmm. whether people feel comfortable acknowledging it or not, people benefit from that. And they benefit when they lean to whiteness. And mm-hmm. so when our expectations are our kids are supposed to present a particular way, they're supposed to look a particular way, they're not supposed to rock the boat, we have to kind of figure out why we're expecting that. And as parents, we have to kind of figure out why it is that we want our kids to be ideal and be model students. Because I'm going to tell you, <laughs> there are plenty of other kids 
that their parents are okay with them not being a model student because they have particular diagnoses. And their expectation is that school should be accommodating because yeah. of this, right? Whereas we are like, this is just another thing laid on top of our kids along with their actual identity. And this is easy for me to say because <laughs> I'm not like slogging, you know, like down there all the time. But the reality is that we have to say, yes, my kid has a diagnosis. We need to address that. But, you know, social factors also affect, you know, the efficacy of certain scales and assessments. If we are not taking into account culture and background and experiences, then our assessments are going to be flawed. A lot of times parents can kind of be very resistant of having their kids having particular labels because the reality is that there are quite a few assessments in there and my field can be pretty racist and it can have things from a very narrow view, whereas we're not taking into context that maybe a kid that we say is hyperactive, maybe they aren't, (laughs) maybe they're anxious, maybe they're in a very uncomfortable situation and this is the way that's happening. And if we look at it and say, well, how would your particular kid experience things if they were in a situation where they were the only. If your kid was in a situation where every time that they walk into a room, kids come to them and crowd around them and touch their skin and their hair, would they feel comfortable? How would your kid feel if they came in and somebody was highlighting the fact that their clothes look different or their hair looks different or the way they talk is different? And those are the things that, you know, sometimes it's helpful for parents to start to say, but we've been kind of conditioned in a way to kind of hedge that too, because it's not which is where I come in and I have no problems. <laughs> I have no problem saying, okay, well, that's great. Well, how would you feel, you know, if you were five years old and there were no other kids that looked like you and nobody really to connect with, would you not cling to your mom a little bit longer on drop off? What would you do for another kid that maybe didn't feel like they fit in? How are you facilitating that? And we're not going to pathologize, you know, something that's normal. Right. And that's that shift into conscious parenting is that, I mean, like, I think two seasons ago, actually that first season, I started to realize that I was following that pathology of Black parenting where I need you, because I have two boys, I want you to be safe. So, you know, I need you not to be too loud. I need you not to question so much because my, you know, it was like almost, we had gotten to the point where it wasn't COVID, but my son is neurodivergent. So he was asking questions like, how come you don't have black books in the classroom? For my generation, we never would have said that. We would have just accepted, we're going to sit here and read books about strawberry shortcake and Kim and just be happy. And it took everything in me to leave him alone. And I really had to start taking a look at myself and why I was doing what I was doing. And one of the things that you said about our kids is, oh my goodness, um, acknowledging how they feel, which feeds into, that leads into the whole ideology that we have that as a black person, as a black man, as a black female, you have to be strong, which is the opposite of actually showing emotion. If you're a show emotion, that is considered almost a weakness. You're right. And we know that it's, we can intellectually say it's not a weakness. What it is, is is vulnerability. And Mm -hmm. it's a possibility when you are in unsafe situations that it can be used against you, which is why a lot of times if a kid may benefit from actually having a good workup and actually getting a diagnosis, parents can be hesitant to that as well, because where it's vulnerable to expose all that and to bear it, it can be helpful because they can get the resources they need. The other hand is that Like you said before, 
everything that they do is going to be based off of that diagnosis. And it's going to be unfair. And this is the lens that is going to be cast upon them. And this is the paper trail. And this is going to be the excuses for possible mistreatment, possible discrimination is because of these things. But we are not in a position to be like, I'm just happy to be here anymore. Right? I'm surely not. And I surely am not okay with kids being in that or people saying that by you know, their grace, we are allowed here, we have rights. And we have rights to feel and our kids 100% have rights to feel. And they should have the right to say, hey, I want something that looks like me. And it's important. And the other part is, when you have a diagnosis, I remember when I initially got one, I got one out of a state of emergency. That's why I call it. So my daughter was in a private school and things were not clocking. And she was in a position where she was one of many. Like when I say one of many, I mean, one of like, you don't see anyone else. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they didn't offer an eighth grade seat. They were like, we didn't understand. She's very bright. And I had been asking questions, but I didn't know what to ask. She had ADHD and she had dysgraphia. They were like, we can't offer a seat. Her world crumbled. So in that position, I realized me not asking and me allowing people to basically brush me aside, it had caused this situation. So I was really key into getting my other boys tested. And what I learned in my entire journey, and I'm still on the journey, I have 14 and 10 year old, is this. It's not the the diagnosis that you need to fear. What you need to fear is learning how to navigate it in such a way that empowers yourself and your child. The diagnosis is like the benchmark. It says these are the things that's showing up for your child and these are the supports that they need. However, the most important thing a parent can do when their child is diagnosed is to figure out how it impedes them academically so that you can always go back there to empower yourself and a child. As a Black person, you never want to be placed in a position where you are allowing them to turn your child into a behavior problem. And that leads to my other question and why I love Kim so much is that I was talking to a speech therapist and they were talking about cultural competency. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. Like Kim, she just talked about a minute ago. She was like, you want to make sure that someone is culturally competent because how they look at your child and how they're able to empathize and understand what's going on with them. It's going to be different. And even if the person working in your child's school is not cultural competent, and Kim is going to share what that is, but you'll be able to be empowered to ask the questions. Like Kim said, you know, how are they feeling? If they were one of many, you don't have to know all of the things, but you just know need to know a little bit as well as put yourself and honestly put yourself in your child's shoes and say, okay, well, yeah, I know my child has ADHD and they can move around a lot. However, he's not doing well in his class. I mean, are you giving him supports for that? Well, what kind of supports are you giving them? It doesn't have to be a disempowering thing, but you have to be aware that once you have that diagnosis, even if your child didn't have a diagnosis, you still have to be well-versed in speaking up and advocating for your child and you have to turn your child into a person. I find that when I deal with, I'm supposed to say it, because most of everyone I deal with in education is white. So when I deal with white people, There's a disconnect in humanizing my son. It's a true disconnect with even when they decide, okay, this is going to be the goal. The goal is going to be he's going to read with a peer. So I have to humanize my son. I say to them, well, he is highly aware that he's not able to read. He's highly aware that he has articulation problem. He's shy. He doesn't have any friends and he's getting bullied. How do you think that's going to play out for him? And they took it away. 
We lead with person first instead of diagnosis. Sometimes it can be easier, I guess, as a clinician to kind of look at the diagnosis because there are steps to follow. And these are the protocols that you follow. I just don't think that it's effective. <laughs> I think that you still have to keep that in mind. And you have to have, a. I find, a more holistic approach is effective. But what you're saying about, like, the need for being culturally confident, I mean, I also take it a step further, you know, if we're looking at, I mean, cultural competency should be the bare minimum, right? But we also need to be anti-racist, <laughs> you know, we have to be anti-classist, we have to be, you know, accepting and understanding of diversity and of differences. And you can't just be like, okay, I can tolerate this. It's like, no, like we have to be, I'm not pulling punches today. Like we have to just be real about it. And then, but you also have to realize that there are not going to be professionals that are going to align with that. And that is not to be accepted, right? It can be expected, but it is not to be accepted. And that you may need to lead with. You will be your child's best advocate. And you lead, just as Jeannie said, with them being a person. Because especially if your kid has a very unique diagnosis or a very unique constellation of um, abilities or (laughs) whatever, um, they will get very excited about a case. And they'll see a case as opposed to this is a child. This is a person. Because... People tend to forget that. And I spent many years of my life, I've been doing this for 20 years, but I've been in many a team meetings on <laughs> set with many a doctors. And I have doctors as friends. And it always has to come back to, and maybe it's me being a social worker, but it always comes back to this is a person and this is their experience. Regardless of a diagnosis, every person is worthy of dignity and respect. Everybody is deserving of being healthy and whole and having enjoyment and joy, which is like my thing on my website is like help your child, you know, find joy again, because everybody is deserving of it. And each person's joy is going to look different. Each person's thriving is going to look different. And that diagnosis or those diagnoses, they can impact a lot of aspects and a lot of systems of your kid's life, but they don't hit all of them and they don't need to color all of them, right? Mm -hmm. But the places that they do affect, we need to address that, right? But we're also not going to take away their humanity. And it's a lot easier for people to take away humanity to get something done or to fit into a box and to get, you know, I want this test done or this is what the intervention you should do or why are you not doing X, Y, and Z? And there's a lot of shame because we're not following through this formulaic pattern mm-hmm. that not work in the real world. <laughs> and in Newsflash, it doesn't work for anybody, right? Mm-hmm. It works for, you know, a limited amount of people in a specific setting, right? Yep. These things are not transferable. So you will be your kid's biggest advocate. If you feel that someone is brushing you off or they're not taking something seriously or they are going by, you know, a knee-jerk reaction because they've seen families like yours before, you can call them on that. You can say, I'm sorry, what did you mean by that? Because there's always going to be somebody higher than them. <laughs> there's always going to be somebody oh, thank you. want to deal with that. I am a therapist and I've worked in very large institutions and in hospitals. And I will tell you that I'll take my kids in for a specialist appointment and they'll say, oh my God, but you know, you're so good about, you know, communicating or you're a good family. What does that mean? What does that mean? (laughs) What does that mean? Right. What are the assumptions? Right. Right. And so it's okay to just either you can call them out if you want to, or you can say, I'll file that away for when you pop off. (laughs) <laughs> we will know. But it's better for you to kind of know, but know that it can be expected, but it's not to be accepted. You can right. try this way. 
Because we're in the pandemic, I asked him, I was like, what are three things that parents can do to support their children with going back to school during a pandemic? Because my boys were like, I'll take that virtual option. I'm like, oh, that's not on the menu, sir. <laughs> and my son literally went in his room and had a meltdown. Yes. And um, after that, I realized every day, I had to just remind him, remember, we're going back to school in person. And he was like, I know. And then, you know, he went back and he had a seamless for him. Yeah, my other son, he's still resistant. <laughs> and with COVID, the mental, the separation from being social with other kids, yes. being virtual, you know, it's been a lot for our kids. And I mean, with all the different rules, regulations, and all the things that we're worried about as parents, I mean, I thought it was interesting. Just like if we had three things to help our kids with the transition. So I think the first thing is, as parents, kind of get in touch with like whatever it is that's coming up for you. So if there's hesitation and then there's fear, then if we're not aware of that, you know, we're kind of pushing that to the side. We inadvertently are going to kind of project that onto our kids. They're going to have enough feelings of their own, right? And this isn't to say that you kind of like push your stuff down and you push it to the side. It's literally to get in touch with what it is that you are really freaking out about yourself, right? What are your worries? And make a list of those worries and see if there are ways that those concerns are going to be addressed at school. What are the ways that, you know, you're going to communicate that to them? If it's, I'm afraid they're not going to wear their mask. Well, I'm afraid that they're not going to be safe in the class. I'm afraid that, you know, this IEP is a mess. (laughs) I'm afraid that, like, what's the social care say? All those things, these are the things that we kind of need to get in touch with. I'm really anxious about my kid going back to school. I'm really nervous. I'm really afraid. Okay, so what is it that you're afraid of? And then that would be what I would say is to focus on that. First on you, you know, that way that when your kids do have some stuff that pops up, you can be present enough to kind of handle what their concerns are versus having your own stuff kind of spill over to it or feeling helpless and hopeless. The second tip would be to trust that your kids are going to be able to, in some kind of way, let you know what's going on. And if not, then there's a trusted, there's at least one trusted staff member there that can kind of give you the ends about what's going on. Send me a no home. Tell me how they did. We all did. I mean, when I worked in the school, I was parents trusted person. I'm like, I'm like, da da da. You go talk to da 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 and do this. So trust the fact that they're going to come in and make it a space where it's okay for them to tell you what's going on. Because some kids are really hesitant about telling their parents something because they're afraid their parents are going to come in and make a huge thing about it. And that's really embarrassing. So we have to kind of reassure them that, all right, listen, I'm not going to make a big deal about this. Like, if there's an issue and it's a safety thing, we're going to take care of it, but I'm not going to embarrass you. Others, they don't even bother because parents are like, oh, it's fine. You'll be okay. And they minimize it. So make a space where kids can actually talk to you about what's going on and letting you know what goes on and make sure that they know that you're going to take what they're saying seriously. It could be that they're complaining about, oh, I don't like my lunch or you know, I don't like where, where I eat. And instead of it being, okay, well, you have to get over that because this is how it is. Validate the feelings. Validate, yeah, this is kind of like uncomfortable. You're in school all day. You have a mask on. You can't be around kids like you do. And on top of that, it's some gross food. What can we do about that, right? Because they're just like us, right? They're just like on top of all this. And then I have this dang hot dog. <laughs> Who wants to eat that, right? And then the third tip would be to make sure that you are still doing fun things for your kids. Please make sure that, you know, we are very set on routines and on schedules and on homework and all this other stuff. And it's us. It's our anxieties, our pressure. We want our kids to perform well. 
But the reality is that they are still kids. And so they're also in a very stressful situation with all these new rules, with adults around them who are highly stressed out with protocols changing, that we need to have something that they can do that they know. They know play. That is one of the best things that we can do for kids is play. And kids, as they age, their play is different, but it's still play. Your 13-year-old still plays. Your five-year-old needs to play. And it's not structured stuff. Like structured play is not play, y'all. Like it's not. I'm going to get on the real quick. It's not play. When your kid in soccer is not play anymore, it's structured. Is your helpful? Yes. That's not considered play. They need unstructured play every single day. They need to be able to color. They need to be able to build something. They need to be able to model something. They need to draw whatever they want to draw that the art teacher didn't tell them to or whatever class. Y'all need to get out of their business about what they're making and how it looks. And they need to play. So those are my three things. Check yourself. Have an open communication with your child and validate their feelings. And thirdly, is to let these kids play. I'm laughing because when you said unstructured play, I was like, oh, you are so right. As well as my son has been on this whole campaign of mom needs to play in her life. And I'm going to find you a video game to play. And I'm not resistant, but I know who I am as a person. And I tend to be really addictive. I have like a pseudo. And that's why I stopped playing video games. Look, everybody, I played some games back in the day. Final Fantasy was my thing. But that was the last game I played as an adult. I had a full-time job. And I would be up at 2 or 4 o'clock in the morning playing Final Fantasy because I needed to get to the next check mark. So I haven't played video games since then. But when we're talking about that play part, you know, he's 14. That's their play. You know, we tend to be really hard on the video games, but think about taking some time, ladies, gentlemen. Of course, you may get the game taken, but it's a memory that you're building for the little second. Yeah, I think that, you know, we always, I mean, moderation is this like weird word because nobody understands it. And you look at the function behind behavior, right? I don't look at the behavior as the issue. So the function, why are we playing video games until two o'clock in the morning? What are you avoiding? What are you asking ah. about? What are you processing? Right? Come on, Kim. Hit him a job. That would be what I would look at, right? I teach kids about escape versus breaks, right? What is the need for escape? Escape is spending all this time on screens or whatever versus I need a break. Kids are like, I can't trust myself to go back. I'm like, because you're not taking a break, you're escaping, right? So we have these things built in regularly. We're not going to have this need to escape because we kind of like release that steam consistently so that we're not kind of crashing and then trying to escape, right? So I always say that it ain't the game. We're using the game for something else, right? And so we say, I can't because I can't trust myself or I have no willpower. I have no control. I would say, look at other things in your life that you absolutely do have willpower for. And when are you able to just stop them easily? Well, because you're not using them to escape. You're not using them to self-soothe, right? But if we add more things to our repertoire of helping us to regulate, we won't really need to be on the video games until two o'clock in the morning. So I say, genie, find another playing game. I'm going to find a game because you're right. When you said that. Escape versus break. I was like, yeah, because I really hated my job. (laughs) I can't express it. I can't express enough. I hated that job. But (laughs) 
<laughs> it has been such a joy. And me and Kim talked before. We wanted to talk about this like for a hot second, guys. And it's about telehealth versus virtual school because some practitioners have sustained and they plan on keeping telehealth. And some parents are like adverse to it because we're like, oh, they did virtual and they hated it. But there's a difference. No, there's a huge difference. So we are coming up to, I closed my office probably March 16th of 2020. So what is this? This is now September 19th of 2021. And I am still virtual. My practice is not imploded. I've actually seen more kids. And I've had kids that I saw in person that transitioned with me to virtual. Parents have a huge concern and even other adults and even other fellow therapists are like, how can you actually do therapy for kids online? And I'm like, because I can, because I'm amazing. But along with being amazing, <laughs> it's to be, you have to be creative. Kids are fine with me because it's not school. We don't have to sit at, you know, the computer screen and just answer questions and be sit still. Like, we set things up the same way that we would in an office. So you have to find a therapist who feels comfortable with not running the show, the one that's okay with things being pretty non-directive, and one that's okay with meeting kids where they are. Like, I got kids running around a house doing scavenger hunts. I got kids who are just creating stuff, jumping around their room. We're following things. They're carrying me somewhere. We're doing sessions as they're walking outside. We're doing sessions, like, on a deck or on a porch. We're meeting kids where they are. The bonus to doing the virtual sessions is that now I have had the kids kind of create safe spaces in their own homes. So their rooms are now these safe spaces. They create their own little tent or their own little quiet space. We've created spaces that they feel comfortable and that's one of the most important things. Also, like I adjust my time for kids to basically, if I can do my typical 50 minute session, I will, but you can drop it down to half an hour. You can say, if your kid seems to be struggling a little bit, you can ask the therapist, would you be able to maybe drop the duration of the session down to half an hour? Cause you kind of want to meet the kid where they are. You also can make sure that the therapist is understanding that the kids are just not in it or they're like overloaded per screen or maybe they need to do it at a different day or time. You know, maybe a kid's already just been really tired and you need to kind of adjust that. So being sure that you have a therapist who's flexible or right. willing to be accommodating and understanding how kids work developmentally is, you know, huge. And also that somebody who's going to be excited and willing to try new things. I have quite a few colleagues that probably have struggled with the transition because what they feel like what they do doesn't necessarily translate virtually. But the reality is that a lot of the stuff that we do translates pretty well. I have a Nintendo Switch next to me. I have one at my home office and I have one in my actual office that I'm in now. And we play things like Animal Crossing and Minecraft together. And those are the ways that we can physically be together. I mean, we'll virtually be together. And this is a creative way of doing it. Uh, Minecraft is like virtual Legos. Like, is that not one of the best things to play with the kid and your role playing and you're playing around with it? It's amazing. So when we kind of take all of these things that they enjoy and we don't put a label on it like, oh, this is just frivolous or this is just like, you know, they, they just are mindless and they do these things. No, it's play. I look at video games the same way that I look at a ball and a jump rope. It is a tool and it is something that they use. And this is kind of where we meet kids. So, yeah, all that to say, virtual can work 
It 100% can work. And for some kids, it's not going to work. And that's okay. And I see a very small handful of kids in my office in person. But at the height of the pandemic, even with my most anxious kids, even with my kids that, oh my gosh, they have ADHD and they have have executive functioning stuff, they all saw me consistently. Consistently. They had no issues with logging on and seeing Ms. Kim because Ms. Kim wasn't asking 20 questions. Ms. Kim was sharing YouTube videos we doing gameplay <laughs> walkthroughs. I'm helping kids with homework because we're going through and we're doing the stuff virtually and we're figuring out different problems. You just have to find a therapist who is able to meet your kids where they are and is adaptable. And some therapists, even in person, will be very rigid and say, this is the way that I do therapy. And if the kids don't like it, then this isn't a kid for me. And that's perfectly fine. I, on the other hand, I'm like, what other things can I do? What other strategies can I do? What other techniques do I need to learn that translate well virtually because this is where my kids are and this is where I'm meeting them. With that being said, Ms. Kim, how can people find you and reach out to you? So if you're in the Philadelphia area or actually if you're in Pennsylvania and you're open for a virtual therapy, my practice is ameltherapy.com. I have expanded and I've hired on three other amazing clinicians who work with kids and teens. So you can you know, schedule a session with either me or my other three therapists. And we do virtual. So we are doing virtual groups right now. I'm running a group for transracial adoptees that's in person, but I also will be running one virtually if there is interest. I also have a child anxiety group, Worry Warriors, that's going to be running for kids age 7 to 10. I also have a teen group that one of my clinicians is running that's specifically for girls of color who are ages 14 to 17. That's coming up. And I also provide parent coaching on my other website, but there's a link for my therapy site for that. So I offer, you know, packages for parent coaching. And I'm also going to be running a six-week parenting group towards the end of the fall for any parents who are interested in conscious parenting. Ooh, okay. Look at that. After this, y'all, y'all know I'm going to have to talk to Kim. But, <laughs> so of course, it's the Parenting Cypher. And I always ask everyone, what's your favorite song that gets you hyped? And Kim said, Lucini by Camp Low. So, why is that your favorite song? Why is that? I don't know. I have this strong belief that I'm like Pharrell. I see colors when I, like, listen to music. But I see these amazing colors and it hits me in my soul. Don't know why, but, like, every time I hear the hook, it hits me right here. <laughs> I don't, know, I don't know why. Now, do I understand anything they're saying in the rest of their album? No, I don't. But that song is fire. It's plenty of songs. I, I mess up all types of words. I make up my own words. But if the hook, the beat, it'll get you. Sometimes it'll get you. You like when you look when you get older and you hear the lyrics, you're like, ooh, ooh. <laughs> but it's so good though. It's still like whenever I hear Bonita Apple Bomb, I only remembered the hook, and I was like, this song is so good. So I was telling my son, my 13-year-old son, I was like, yeah. Then it played and it was like, I'll be Anita Applebaum. I got to put you on. And then he was like 36, 37. I was like, oh, wait, no. No, no, no. This is not for kids. It's not for kids. I mean, the other song I really like is Electric Relaxation. Yeah. yeah. I had a guest last season. She was like, girl, that Electric Relaxation. I was trying to keep it. Semi-PG, but yeah, that one. But thank you so much for being a guest on the Cypher. Thank you for And giving us these tips about this pandemic, girl. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would say to everybody, just, you know, kind of trust yourself, trust the process. And y'all know a lot more than 
you think you do. You're definitely the expert of your child and especially expert of their humanity. So go into your meetings, keep that foremost in your mind and, you know, you'll be okay. Thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, please subscribe and go to wherever you listen to your podcast and give us a five-star review. That helps us build this community. And that's what we're all about, building this community as big as we can to deliver as much value as we can. The Parenting Cypher Podcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company and the executive producer, myself, Jeannie Dawkins. Until next time, remember to be patient with yourself and your child.